0: Chapter Three of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three The Island of St. Croix. In alternation between summers spent with the family of Dr. Channing in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, intermittent attempts at teaching, as in the then-famous Fowle Monitorial School, and winters passed in more southern latitudes, the years went by, till, in the autumn of 1830, Miss Dix was invited by Dr. Channing to accompany his household, as instructress of his children, to the tropical island of St. Croix, in which he was himself to seek the recuperation of, of his greatly impaired health the party sailed in the schooner rice plant from boston november 20th 1830 reaching their destination after a short and prosperous voyage saint croix one of the west india islands belonging to denmark enjoyed in those days such repute for salubrity of climate as to be much sought as a refuge by delicate and consumptive patients from the United States. Twenty-three miles long by six in width, and crowned by the eminence of Blue Mountain rising to a height of eleven hundred feet, The proportion of land to the surrounding extent of the ocean made residence on it almost like being at sea. A visit to the tropics had been looked forward to by Miss Dix with intense delight. Now she would see with her own eyes an utterly new flora and fauna, a literal paradise of trailing vines, palms, bananas, rare birds, shells, and marine plants. Indeed, it seems here the most fitting place again to call attention to that vivid interest in all the branches of natural history, which unquestionably would have asserted itself as the dominant passion of her mind had it not been overmastered by the still stronger passion for consecrating herself to the relief of human suffering. All through life, the prospect of snatching an hour from pressing cares for the criminal and the insane, to devote to studying in its native habitat a new plant, new seaweed, or new shellfish, or for observing anything before unseen in a bay of Fundy tide, or a remarkable geological formation— excited in her, an enthusiasm nothing could call her off from but the cry of human misery. What she might have achieved, had her indomitable energy been permanently turned in the direction of natural science, it is impossible to say. Certain it is, there would have been no crater, however deep and sulfurous, into which her courage would have shrunk from descending. No marsh, however malorious, that would have hidden from her the secret of its most secluded moss or peat flower. Arriving now in the actual tropics, and with all her northern energy on the alert for fresh achievement, Miss Dix unexpectedly found herself brought face to face with a lesson in human nature, which began a modification of character in her it took years to work out. So far in life, the uncompromising champion of the power of the human will to rise superior to circumstances of every kind Great was her dismay and mortification at finding herself for a time the passive victim of a purely physical environment. Before this date, indeed, stern experience had forced her to admit the indisputable fact that the lungs might become inflamed and a sharp, burning pain transfix the side. But this only meant that one could no longer use the voice for teaching. One could still study, write, master fresh knowledge, meditate, and pray. But now she had to succumb utterly to an invisible and intangible foe on which she could get no purchase, to simple tropical climate. Pain could be fought, but languor, an utter languor of desire and will, which blunted every weapon she had been used to wield and made the arm nerveless to grasp it, here was something which baffled her utterly. Indeed, of this entirely new phase of experience, Miss Sticks speaks feelingly in a letter to her friend, Mrs. Samuel Torrey, to whom she writes, quote, Another letter from you, my dear friend, impels me to take up my pen. I think that this incitement would not have been needed had I been under any other influence than this before-named languor. Our darling Mary says, How changed Miss Dix is. She always used to be busy, and now she only says, Don't talk to me. "'and throws herself on the bed twenty times a day. "'I am also the unfortunate subject of Dr. Channing's jests. "'My dear,' he says to Mrs. C., "'where can Miss Dix be?' "'But I need not ask, doubtless very busy as usual. "'Pray, what is that I see on yonder sofa? "'Some object shrouded in white?' Oh, that is Miss Dix after all. Well, well, tell it not in gath. How are the mighty fallen? All this I bear, but I am rising above it in more than one sense. I am really getting well, or well over this vexatious no disease that does nothing, thinks nothing, is nothing.' It is of interest here to ask what was the impression made on a mind so sympathetic with human suffering, and so resolute to champion its cause, by this her first actual contact with African slavery. Judging from her letters, it was an experience not at all uncommon with persons of her peculiar type of character arriving in the tropics from the bleak north with a mind long strained to the highest tension in the pursuit of moral ideals the abysmal gulf that opened up between the careless dancing morally irresponsible Africans and any class of human beings she had up to this time ever fallen in with seems to have dizzied her in all her previous standards of judgment. Like northern people in general, on their first acquaintance with far southern life, she too was completely carried away with the fascination of a spontaneity, grace, and spirit of pure physical lightheartedness of which the North affords scarcely a trace. The rigid New England schoolmistress element in her nature is for a time thawed and dissolved away, giving place to an opposite extreme. Morality is still to her the glorious crown of humanity in Massachusetts, but as for St. Croix and among the Negro slaves— is it to be rationally looked for there? "'You have no idea,' she writes to her friend, Mrs. Torrey, "'how interesting the Negroes are here. "'They have not, what we are used to seeing "'in the descendants of Africans at the North, "'coarse features and clumsy gait and rough voices. "'They are, in general, handsome.'" much above the generality of the whites with very fine figures and graceful beyond anything I have ever seen. Their voices in conversation are musical and their manners respectful. Sometimes their accents, especially those of the children, are soft and plaintive, touching the heart. For all this, they are in reality cheerful and happy." They are the most graceful dancers imaginable. They never make a false step, and there is a heartiness, simplicity, and ease with which they sustain their favorite amusement that draws the spectator into the most lively enjoyment of the exhilarating scene. I cannot regard these subjective beings as responsible for any immoralities." Taking into consideration all the circumstances in which they are placed, I would by no means teach them the distinctions of right and wrong. I should not enlighten them only to ensure a tenfold wretchedness here, and perhaps not make any progress in aiding them to be happier hereafter. They are not free agents. Their managers, overseers... And too often their owners are very corrupt, and the slaves are within and under their control End quote. Later on, however, it is clear from Mystics's letters that this peculiar fascination exerted on tense New England minds by their first contact with pure physical gaiety of temperament is fast wearing away and that her old moral standards are again powerfully reasserting themselves. She is manifestly triumphing, as she said she soon should, over this vexatious no-disease that does nothing, thinks nothing, is nothing, and now writes in the following strain to Mrs. Torrey, Your view of slavery corresponds with my own disguise thyself as thou wilt still slavery still thou art a bitter draught and human nature will not wear thy chains without cursing the ground for the enslaver's sake his gold shall perish with him would seem to be the mildest language of justice but would it ever be the form or however remote the time, sure am I that a retribution will fall on the slave merchant, the slave holder, and their children to the fourth generation. As I regard the hundreds around me for life subjected to bondage, I am tempted to ask when they commit a fault, Do these men sin, or their masters? These beings, I repeat, cannot be Christians. They cannot act as moral beings. They cannot live as souls destined to immortality. Who then shall pay the awful price of their soul's redemption? Who but those who have hidden from them the bread of life, and sealed up from them the fountains of living waters?" who have darkened the dark mind and obscured the clouded powers of thought. Oh, for a Jeremiah to cry, Woe, woe! Ere total destruction cometh. Oh, for the inspirations of an Isaiah to pierce the hardened with the arrows of timely repentance. No blessing, no good, can follow in the path trodden by slavery. No door of mercy opens for him whose soul is stained by unnumbered sins committed by others through his agency. It has been of importance to dwell on this personal experience of the enervating effect wrought by tropical languor on the most exceptional energy of northern will because it is very evident that the winter spent on the island of st croix and the full year or more of languishing illness she later on was to go through with in liverpool england wrought in mystics a gradually developing modification of view These were the first great experiences that fixed her attention on a class of positive phenomena lying largely outside the control of the human will, through the clear recognition alone of which it became possible to her to allow more largely for physical and moral imperfections and infirmities. Her standard of judgment was rendered by them less an absolute and immutable procrusts-bed, on which all alike must be stretched and cut to a uniform pattern. Toward herself, indeed, and the demands she through life made on her own flesh and blood, she remained inexorable. But she came finally to see that she differed from others— and that she was a being apart, with a law of her own to obey. Gradually, though only gradually, the disposition lessened in her to insist on her own almost superhuman standard of self-sacrifice as the rule, or even possibility for others. And so at last, when she had sounded the awful depths of her own great mission of mercy— and paid the full tribute of the blood-money exacted, it came to be with her as with that kindred spirit, Elizabeth Fry, whose daughters have recorded in the biography they wrote of her quote, she would have shrunk from urging the same course on others. she feared her daughters and other young women generally undertaking questionable or difficult public offices. She laid great stress on the outward circumstances of life, how and where providentially placed, the opportunities afforded, the powers given. She did not consider this call to be general or to apply to persons under an administration different from her own." End quote. How complete, however, was, in Miss Dix's own case, The triumph over tropical languor there is ample evidence in the journals and notebooks she brought back with her to New England. They show an exhaustive study of all the physical features of the island and embrace full catalogs of its native and cultivated plants, trees, and crops, of its marine flora and fauna. So valuable were, moreover, the collections of specimens she laboriously made that presents of portions of them to such scientific men as Professor Benjamin Silliman, Audubon, and others brought her the most cordial letters of thanks and praise. Besides, while at Saint Croix, she evidently did a large amount of reading. Very characteristic, is it, as one turns the pages of these notebooks, now yellow with the time stain of sixty years, to see how diligently she wrote out full extracts from the saints and sages of all periods and all lands, whose words bore on the right conduct human life. These extracts are from Hindu, Persian, Greek, and Christian sources. Though herself the most orthodox of the earlier type of Unitarianism, her inner life was of too genuine a strain to resist the witness of the Spirit, in whatsoever land or under whatsoever dispensation it was breathed abroad." In a letter to the writer of this biography, Mrs. Mary C. Eustace, the daughter of Dr. Channing, records in the following words her own recollections of Miss Dix at the time of the winter in St. Croix, and of the summers at her father's country seat in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. She was tall and dignified, but stooped somewhat was very shy in her manners and colored extremely when addressed. This may surprise you who knew her only in later life when she was completely self-possessed and reliant. She was strict and inflexible in her discipline, which we her pupils disliked extremely at the time but for which I have been grateful, as I have grown older and found how much I was indebted to that iron will from which it was hopeless to appeal, but which I suppose was not unreasonable, as I find my father expressing great satisfaction with her tuition of her pupils. I think she was a very accomplished teacher, active and diligent herself, very fond of natural history and botany. She enjoyed long rambles, always calling our attention to what was of interest in the world around us. I hear that some of her pupils speak of her as irascible. I have no such remembrance. Fixed as fate, we considered her. We all became much attached to her, and she was our dear and valued friend, and most welcome guest in all our homes. She was a very religious woman, without a particle of sectarianism or bigotry. At the little union meeting house, which adjoined Oakland, our place on Rhode Island, Mystics always had the class of troublesome men and boys, who succumbed to her charm of manner and firm will. Later on, after the death of her grandmother, she was a constant visitor at our house. She delighted to drop in unexpectedly, and then suddenly receiving a letter from a poor soldier at Fort Adams, would start off at a moment's notice to right his wrong and persuade the government to improve the arrangements for the comfort of the men. End quote. End of chapter 3